we had to come in and build steel platforms. And these were huge two-story towers. The tallest one we did was 30 feet. And the shortest one we did was nine feet. And these towers had to be built prior to the birds nesting so that we wouldn't go in there and, and disturb the nest. It was a major gamble that they were even going to use the nest. We had, you know, a $100,000 camera literally an inch from the water. And you'll hear one or see one just kind of launch itself and flutter up and hang on the edge of a hole and start checking it out. Those little baby ducklings are coming out of that hole. It don't matter if it's raining, storming, high winds, they're coming out of that hole. You could miss the whole thing that you've worked on for months in a matter of seconds, literally. Live from Ontario, Colorado, Wyoming, and South Carolina, it's Saturday night. Nicely done. <laughs> Welcome to Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. We have a fantastic episode for you today. And coming to you from various destinations in different time zones, we have Michael Morrow in Denver, Colorado this time. About to be back in Alaska, but currently we're in Denver and it's, it's miserably hot. It's uh, according to my watch, it's like 88 degrees. You know, when you spend all summer in Alaska and then you come here and you hit 88, it's kind of not so much fun. You got to work on the beach bod and the tan. Sunny, yeah, right? Well, you can't because here's the problem with all the fires and you probably have that. Well, maybe not out where you're at as much, but Canada, the whole West is just, I mean, I woke up the other night and I could smell smoke and the fires are, I don't even know how far the closest fire to us is in Colorado. I'm sure there's one within a couple hundred miles, but they say it's all the California fires, all the just all over the place. And the weather patterns are just running that smoke right through Colorado. And it's just horrible. And then wow. the other day at night, when you look at the streetlights, you could see the smoke in the air just in the streetlights. It is horrible. It's getting so, worse and worse, man. Yeah, worse. it's been really bad. Yeah. You know, I like to ride my bike for exercise. And, and uh, you know, I put on a lot of miles when I do that. And I thought, man, I don't really want to be out there inhaling that smoke for miles and miles and miles so i haven't been outside to exercise it's just all inside yeah that's too bad yeah a lot of respiratory issues i know a lot of british columbia is in flame right now and yeah and uh, it's the the uh, smoke from that is hit all the way to manitoba and um you, and there was a nasa, a NASA um, image from space and you could clearly see it, just a plume of smoke across western canada and you know with the with the western pine beetle and how how many lodgepole pines have been killed by that uh, invasive species, it's it's just going to increase, man, and it's it's not letting up. I mean, it's still burning. I have friends in northern BC, and uh, one lady, friend of mine, has her own island, thankfully, and it hasn't got on her island. But the footage she's got of the flames on the shoreline and it's just insane, epic, and hot hot fires. Yeah, they say the fires around here won't go out totally until it snows. Wow, and that's probably the case everywhere. You know, it's probably just yeah. one of those situations. But I have heard some stuff about BC too, and you would think it's normally pretty wet. But fires are going. Yeah, no, it's it's a big concern. And Ron, what's it doing in Wyoming today? Same thing. Unless you get a north or an east wind, you can't see anything at all. It's we've got okay. fires in Yellowstone and Western Wyoming, but then again, the same same smoke that's being brought through in the jet stream that that probably Mike is seeing down in Denver. It's a shame. Almost hazy to the point where it's dusk all day. 
Wow. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's kind of a cool light. You know, it's really cool mm -hmm. to see that sun coming through that smoke, but I'd rather not have it. Yeah, yes. exactly. I was in New York of... last week doing a shoot, and they were, you know, all the locals are like, see that, that haze out there? And I couldn't see it. I'm like, eh, I don't really see it. But they could clearly see it. They're used to seeing what they're seeing, right? So they said that that was the smoke that was traveling across the U.S. So it's everywhere. It could be. It could be. I know in Ontario, we haven't had to be subject to any smoke haze. Um, we do get smog haze coming from Toronto, unfortunately, and stuff like that. But right. today was a beautiful summer day in southern Ontario, so no complaints here. And uh, summer's been a whirlwind, man, this year between the fun that we've been having and traveling. And that's just seems like it's wrapping up super fast with uh, heading north next week to do uh, wildlife and and podcast work and stuff so it's going to be fall before you know it and for you guys too so you get to escape out of there yeah it's kind of weird to be thinking about fall already i'm not ready. I, it is i That's mean i'm ready because it's my favorite time of year but it's same I'm not ready because yeah. i don't want that to be over right so and now, that's going to go fast i could use another month of summer and then yeah. lots of fall after that you know <laughs> i hear you i'm on the i'm on the same page it's been it's been fast and you know and not to the, i somebody told me a great it's not really a joke this week, but, you know, talking about how we get older and time goes by faster. Now, we're all young people here. We are. We'll admit that. However, we do notice, I notice time going by faster and faster each year. And somebody told me it's like a roll of toilet paper, man. When you spin it, <laughs> comes off a lot faster the further you go along, right? Like, ah, oh, I don't know if I needed that metaphor. But now I've shared it with the rest <laughs> of the world. So, sorry, it's not just my earworm. It's everybody else's. Yep. So, on on today's episode, we are privileged to have a very accomplished cinematographer on board. And before we uh, introduce him, I want to just take a quick moment and encourage all of our listeners to follow and subscribe, no matter what audio platform you're listening on. And when you see the opportunity, give us a thumbs up, the five-star rating, because it really makes a difference it allows us to continue to do what we love to do and to bring these podcasts your way. It just takes an extra second, and we would appreciate that effort. So, Michael, I know that you and Ron have known Doug for many years, and for our listeners' sake, his list of credits is impressive. If you've heard of a network out there, he's probably collected footage for it. And uh, so, and we also, I want to add in, on, a, on another side note, before we start talking to Doug and getting to know Doug, and this is my first day talking to Doug, so I'm excited to get to know him as well as our listeners. We have a special surprise today at the end of this podcast. Now, don't fast forward to the end of the podcast because you need <laughs> to hear all the way along this right. buildup and the information and why it's a surprise develops through the podcast. But stay tuned and stick it out to the end because we have a special surprise today. So, Michael, please introduce Doug for our audience. So I guess before I introduce him, I'll tell a little story about how I met Doug. And I think Ron might have a similar experience, but Doug had his own show on, on PBS and it was for wildlife photography. And I get this call one day from this dude that has this really Southern accent and he's just out of the blue, like, Hey, can we shoot some elk in Colorado? And, and you know, what, what do you do with that? I'm like, yeah, I guess we could. And so I did a little investigating. He's the real deal. And we get it all planned out. And then he calls me about, I don't know, two or three weeks later. He's like, oh, I'm going to have to cancel on you. I got something else came up, whatever. I'll call you next year. And I'm like, whatever. I'll never hear from this dude ever again. And next year, 
the next year comes around and sure enough, Doug's calling me back and he's like, so that elk uh, photographic expedition that we were going to do, can we go back and do that and record it for my TV show? And I'm like, sure, let's do that. So that, that was the first time I got to meet Doug. He actually showed up and uh, we went out and did a whole show out in Rocky Mountain National Park with the elk and had a blast. And it was a, it was a really cool thing. So that's how I met Doug through his TV show. And, and I thought he would be an awesome guest on the show here today because he started out just like me. Started out with stills, then has since moved to video. Still dabbles in the stills, but mainly makes a living shooting video at this point. So, Doug, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. And before we go any further, I just want to I want to clear the air with all this baby whining about hot temperatures, guys. Y'all are out there with no humidity, <laughs> guys. I'm sitting here, 97 degrees with 97 percent humidity. And um, I got sweat in places I don't care to tell you. We, we, appre rough. we appreciate that, Doug. You, that's, <laughs> you know, I feel, and I the, feel only the pain. Smoke, and the only smoke we have here is coming off the barbecue pit. And I tell you, it smells good. <laughs> that, that, that would be good smoke. <laughs> so no, it's uh, a pleasure to be here, guys. Yeah, Thanks we're super excited to have you here. The uh, Ron, you probably have a little story like mine. I don't know if how you met Doug, but... Uh, since we both know him, maybe you can share your story. Yeah, actually, very similar. I was in the middle of an of a showing, and uh, got a call from Doug. Had to step outside, and we kind of made plans. And and same thing, we ended up doing a show together on uh, sage grouse and sharp tail grouse here in Wyoming uh, for his wild photo adventure show. And actually, having done the show and, and watched, you know, he, at the end of the season, he sends you a tape. I watched the episode that Mike was in. And I happened to be in Rocky Mountain National Park and see Mike standing on the side of the road and stopped and introduced myself. I was with my son. So that's actually how we met as well. That's right. I forgot yeah. about that. Amazing. Yeah, I'm gonna, so it's I'm your gonna, show. I'm going to bow out for 30 seconds and let you three hug it out here. <laughs> <laughs> A little bromance going on here. <laughs> yeah, it was it was funny because uh, I knew Doug had, was working up in uh, Western Wyoming this past winter, and my chiropractor came in and saw me one day. And I know he's a he's a mountain climber and he's kind of a wild man. They do some pretty extreme climbing, ice climbing in the wintertime. And, and he extreme. says, "Man, we <laughs> we." He showed me a picture of this camera, and it was a red camera. I had a fifty to a thousand lens on it. And he says, yeah, this guy's up here filming for the BBC. And we told him what we were doing. And he drug that camera all the way up the mountain to film us climbing. I said, was he a, a lanky guy with a southern, deep southern accent? And he says, yeah. I said, was his name Doug? He says, how do you know this? <laughs> and uh, so Doug was filming my chiropractor here in Douglas, Wyoming, climbing over in western Wyoming while he was on assignment. Uh, getting some wildlife world, footage very yeah yeah um so doug you ought to explain a little bit about your show or mark has something go ahead mark yeah i just wanted to say for our listeners sake that doug's last name is gardner doug gardner but don't go look him up yet because there's too much happening here listen on <laughs> all right yeah i guess we ought to throw in his last name that's important but uh, <laughs> now that we've referenced the show so many times and and that's how we all met maybe that'd be kind of cool for you to describe you know the show's no longer going on as a production you're still using a lot of the media in different areas but just explain how you came up with the idea of the show and, and what it was for. 
Yeah, so it was pretty interesting. Um, my wife and I were sitting in the house one night watching TV, going through 600 channels of satellite channels. And there was, well, there wasn't anything really good, to be honest with you, to watch. And the other thing that we noticed was my wife said, you know, there is a TV show about every conceivable subject matter in the world that you can think of. And I actually stopped the the channels on a guy on this old man panning for gold i mean and he was literally using a pan and he was probably 85 years old and it was so painfully slow and hard to watch i was like this thing's been on like nine years this this show for panning for gold and I was like, you know what, if if he can do it, I can do it. But my wife said, you know what, there's the, there's a show about everything but wildlife photography. And I was like, you know, you're right. She said, well, you ought to try to put together a show. And I was like, I didn't know anything about TV at that point. I was literally was just a still photographer at that point, um, all wildlife, natural history stuff. And so, you know, I said, I kind of dismissed the whole idea and said, you know what, I don't know enough about this to even do it. So I dismissed it completely for a couple of years. And then I started putting thought to that thing after I started seeing how video was coming along, you know, with technology and how important it was. And I said, you know what, this would be a great marketing tool for, for us because at that time, you know, stock was also starting to cave in a little bit. And, you know, Really, the traditional methods of making money off of wildlife photography were kind of becoming very diluted as well. You know, stocks, uh, stock sales, print sales, uh, things like that. You know, that was the same avenues all of us were chasing at, at that time were becoming diluted. And I said, you know what, I'm going to learn what I need to know to start a show about it. And I literally didn't even know enough about the TV world to ask an intelligent question. But I worked through it, figured it out, put together a crew of one man and myself. And we bought a camera and we went out and we started doing it. Now, if you start looking at the five seasons of uh, Wild Photo Adventures, uh, the first two seasons are pretty rough to watch. I cringe every time I watch them because <laughs> we were really learning it uh, as we as we went along. You know, everybody else seemed to like it, but I cringed. But, you know, I, when I decided to do the show, I had several criteria uh, or, or goals, I guess I should say, that I wanted to accomplish during that time and with the show. And I, at the beginning, I said, you know, if I do five seasons, I'll consider this a success. And, and that's what we did. Uh, and when I got to the fifth season, you know, things, a lot of other things were starting to change. Um, the fact that I had over 70 million people watch the show uh, through PBS, you know, that opened a lot of doors that I didn't have before. Avenues like magazines calling me directly instead of my stock agent calling saying, Hey Doug, do you have this whitetail shot for deer and deer hunting magazine? Or do you have this, uh, Prothonoche warbler shot, you know, for the cover of birds and blooms, they were calling me direct. So now I've cut out 50% of the commissions, right? So that was a huge change and it was advertising that, that literally money couldn't buy. So, you know, a lot of doors began to open for me. And so I became a lot busier as well. Thus, I didn't have time to continue the show. Well, the other thing that it did during the course of producing the show 
I always found myself behind the video camera. You know, the guy with my videographer, David Reagan, he would set up the shot, he would shoot it, and I couldn't stand I'm I'm a control freak, so I'd run behind the camera and take a look. Well, every time I got behind that video camera, I fell more and more in love with, with video. And that whole aspect started to snowball, and I, it really didn't grab me, you know, uh, and, and I become addicted to it until about the time we decided to stop the series. And also at that time, I was starting to get different type of phone call, people like the BBC, Nat Geo, the Disney Nature. They were calling me to say, hey, we need a cameraman. And I'm like, okay. And well, I don't know what you're going to use stills for. They, No, 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 no. Just shoot video. Do You shoot video, right? We, we see that you produce the show. And so they assumed I was shooting video. But I was just producing it. I wasn't actually shooting at that time. But I had been learning how to do it. And, and, and it all just kind of came together right there at the end. So... You know, calling the show quits, and I hate to say, say the term quit because I've never quit anything, but I met my goal at five seasons, let's put it that way, and time became a major problem, and I had to kind of juggle what was, you know, what was I going to do? And for me, the turning point to switch from stills to video, all my life I, I, I've considered myself extremely fortunate because I was one of the few that was actually able to make a living in wildlife photography which is very, very tough to do. There are still very few people out there today that, that can do it without subsidizing it with something else. I was one of the fortunate ones. You know, I, I thought I, I consider myself very fortunate because I got to do, I mean, what I love to do. And I thought I had the perfect job and I thought my puzzle was complete. You know, this was what I was going to do the rest of my life. I've, you know, I'm complete. Well, when I felt, when I started getting diving into video a little bit, that's when I decided, you know what, there is a little something in that there's a little ruffled corner in that puzzle that isn't complete. And that is what was missing. And it was the video side of it. It was the part that I fell in love with was being able to see fluid motion and to tell a complete story. You know, when when we're out shooting stills and the elk walks behind a thicket of trees, you no longer have a shot. Well, with video, if you can follow that elk as he walks through the trees and you'll see a leg, you'll see an antler, you'll see a, uh, a head, you know, just peek in and out of the bushes. And that's all very usable stuff. It tells a story. It tells a story about where they live and the environment and, you know, how elusive they can be sometimes. And so that was the missing link for me. And so when all these things started coming together, I just... I was locked in. I'm like, this is me. This this is what I've been waiting on all my life. And so it was a natural progression for me. And um, and the show helped me do that. Um, I was able to achieve it was four or five goals I wanted to achieve with the show. And and um, and I was able to do that. Congrats, man. That's a great story. The number one issue you said the first couple of years you had a little trouble with the you know, you're just kind of learning the videography aspect mm -hmm. of it. Is that kind of when you started getting past the language barrier with the PBS audience as well? Yeah, well, the, the biggest hurdles I oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think somebody's that? taking a shot here. What's going on, guys? I know There's no inside joke. Yeah, some dart went through the Skype machine here. No, I get I get I get uh, I get ridiculed about the southern draw all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Well, Mark's got the out in the boat. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I'm not hey. saying it. I'm not saying it right now. I'm going to do it. Hey, 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 take off, eh? That's right. Who's I actually, one of the. Are you uh, calling me a hoser now? <laughs> actually, it's all yeah, good, for... guys. You know, we're all neighbors. And, and uh, yeah, that's right. I think it's cool there's some diversity. It's actually impressive on this continent because, you know, it's a day and a half drive and I can go knock on Doug's door. And, you know, right. but yet it's, it's, there's some different ways of life and different ways of speaking. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's cool. There's nothing oh, but it's awesome. I love it. Yeah. I love having it. Yeah. And look at me. I, or if I go to Newfoundland, I love going to Newfoundland because of how they talk. Friendliest right. people, but they'll talk. You can't. Good luck, you know. So when you're up there this year, you're going to need to do a couple of podcasts with the locals, just to like a little shorty short oh, thing. Yeah. Just because I would love to hear hear the talk up there. It's it's got to be pretty awesome. I'll be, I'll be doing a fair amount of video on the second segment of my trip, so we'll try to spin something in there for your uh, listening enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you were telling me one day you were explaining. You were actually telling me a little bit about how they talk and what certain things meant, and it was it sounded really cool. I mean, it'd just be good to have it recorded. Isn't it amazing that I mean? And again, it's like a two day drive, and I could be there. Right. And we're not that far apart and it's just a little bit different, but same sweet, genuine people who care about their neighbors, you know? So I, I embrace the Southern accent. I embrace the Newfoundland accent, you know, it's why not? But at the oh, same time, sure. it's so interesting that given that we're ge geographically only this far apart, that there is that difference too. It's interesting. Right. And that it still exists. Right. Look at the French quarter in Louisiana. Right. right? I mean, all, oh, it's yeah. just great character. Love it. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's what makes us diverse. You know, that's what makes the world interesting. It does make it interesting. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. The different dialects and, and conversations. And, you know, some people like to make fun of my out and about or, Ooh, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick funny story about that. So during the show, I, I, first of all, I cannot stand my accent. And during the show, and I'm sure Ron and, and Mike both can probably remember, remember situations where I would retake stuff because I actually tried to control my accent when I was doing the show, tried to, to really enunciate words, um, you know, and, and not draw things out. And um, so sometimes it just slips and it slips pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> so I was doing a show on Lake Marion and it was kind of a scavenger hunt type show where we're going to go out for the day and shoot whatever we can shoot. And there's a lot of swamps there. So we have a lot of pathology warblers. And I was getting all excited. I found the warblers and, you know, I'm talking and I'm out, out of the boat. I'm actually dragging the boat with a rope and I'm in my chest waders. And I'm going through the swamp, got the camera over my shoulder. And then David is standing in the front of the boat, filming me down in the water as I pull him in the boat and talk and do all these, all this multitasking at one time. Well, I was really into what I was doing. And I was like, okay, folks, right here in front of us, we've got a beautiful pathology wobbler. A wobbler, not a warbler, a wobbler. And it went to air. I didn't even catch it until a viewer asked me if a wobbler and a warbler was the same bird. <laughs> so, yeah. You were the wobbler ba balancing in, in the swamp, pulling the boat. That's man. right. Yeah, for sure. 
for sure, for sure. But that is that is my happy place is the swamps. Um, you know, well, that's and, cool. That's unique. I, you're the first person I've heard say that, and that's not a knock on you. I just, you no, know, we yeah. all have our place, and then the the life in a swamp. I mean, how diverse is that, right? Yeah, from aquatic oh, yeah. to it, birds, absolutely. To, and it's incredible the diversity of life in a swamp. Incredible. Yeah, people don't understand it. It's actually swamps and wetlands are some of the larger, more diverse ecosystems that we have, you know, because you, you have water that plays into that now. And, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I was born and raised pretty much in a swamp and I don't live in one of the biggest swamps. Um, I do live in one of the, the more well-known ones in the United States. Um, I'm right near the Sparkleberry swamp. And uh, I think the largest is the Chafalaya down in Louisiana, Mississippi. But yeah, it's it's a beautiful place. And my kind of lifelong goal is to convert people of the world that a swamp is not this nasty, malaria-infested, scary, spooky place that you want to stay out of. I mean, yes, there are things in there that can hurt you. There, there are a lot of things that can hurt you. There are leeches, there are alligators, there are poisonous snakes, wasps, hornets, you name it. And Actually, one of the, on. <laughs> yeah, and the list goes on. Actually, one of the more wobblers. dangerous things that I yeah, and wobblers, those scary wobblers. yellow birds. <laughs> I tell you, get one of those in the temple. I, that's a rough day. So, yeah, yeah, but yeah, one of the actually one of the things that you don't even think about. One of the biggest uh, hazards is falling trees. I cannot tell you how many close calls I've had from um, what we call wildlife trees, which is your your dead standing trees. Um, falling very very close to me and you know take get one of those across the head and you're okay. you're goner so these swamps these trees have to be ancient and what, what i'm wondering here is if some of the lord of the ring things going on with the ents and they're just saying far enough doug and they're just kind of putting their limb down <laughs> might be it may be a sign that i have not been uh abiding by very well uh but yeah no, my, my goal gotta, yeah my goal is to kind of just prove to people that this is you know it is something completely different than, than what you think of. You know, um, I posted some pictures this morning, actually, on Facebook, and uh, I was out in the swamp this morning at sunrise. And, you know, there was several comments. Hey, you know, I, I like your pictures, but I don't like swamps. I'm scared of swamps. And, and you know, I'd love to change that that mentality that people have because it is, it is a fascinating place. It really is. I believe that. I believe it. And and what a great cause, man. And and you're right. I think most people are intimidated by swamps for, you know, uh, reasons of fear that aren't necessarily sound. Right. The wolf. It's Hollywood. Yeah. It's just yeah. The big bad it all wolf. Bears. Yeah. yeah. They attack for a reason. Uh, it, either they think you're you either have presented yourself in a way that you are look small enough that they actually think there's something that they can eat. If you're standing upright, I've never had an alligator even approach me in a threatening way when I was, you know, a large portion of my body was out of the water. Now I have had them come up and investigate me when I was down in chest waders where only uh, my shoulders and my head was out of the water and I had camouflage on me and I, all they saw was a bush moving and came to investigate it. You know, uh, a lot of, a lot of times people's dogs do get attacked. Um, and for that very reason, that's small enough that they can eat. Um, but you know, I've never had, they're just not out to get you. It's, it's not like that at all. If you are near their babies, that's a different story, but you know, that's where your field craft comes in when you, you know, act after you've 
have experience working with these animals, watching their behaviors and, you know, photography and, and filming, it's, it's all about learning from every experience. That's what makes you a better photographer, a better cinematographer in the future, because now you can anticipate things, you know, a little more about, uh, you know, what you can expect out of a specific species as you work with them. So, um, you know, and, and same with the poison snakes, they're just not going to come racing at you and bite you. you know, we have lots of water moccasins, lots of, um, timber rattlesnakes and, um, uh, copperhead, excuse me, three copperheads, water moccasin and the, uh, rattlesnakes. And they just don't come out chasing you down the road like like hollywood makes it sound uh they really are more scared of you than you are of them they they want to get out of your way almost every single time so i like that now those those mosquitoes now they're a doozy now they will come after you <laughs> maybe yeah, that's the here. case everywhere right yeah you're gonna I'm, scare, I'm, scare people with the mosquitoes now yeah i'm <laughs> lobbying to change the south carolina state bird to the mosquito <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing with uh you know i know you've been working a lot with the bbc here lately and first things that you told me about was the was wood ducks right yeah and then after yeah. wood ducks that kind of got you in a little deeper with bbc and then you went on to do a whole thing about the mississippi river right the first blue chip that i did for them uh was called life in the air rewind a little bit when i got out of college i went to work for the south carolina waterfowl association anybody that knows me you know they know that I absolutely have an infatuation with waterfowl, ducks, geese, and swans of all kinds, all locations. It doesn't matter. Absolutely an infatuation with them. And that for that reason, I kind of specialize in that and specifically wood ducks. So when I uh, got out of college, I went to work for the South Carolina Waterfowl Association, and they have one of the largest wood duck nesting box programs in the world. And a guy came into my office uh, prior to going to work for them he, he basically asked me how doug how would you like to have a free truck a free boat work outdoors all day and i was like yes i'll take it i'll take the job whatever it is because my first actually my first job for a couple of weeks uh was at a newspaper right after i got out of college but he walked in and i went to work for the waterfowl association doing all the research on uh, wood ducks and mallards and their wood duck nest box program i learned an immense amount about wood ducks and and the whole ecology of the wood duck and that kind of got me into a specialty about them well years later bbc contacted actually the waterfowl association wanting to know more information about wood ducks and you know is south carolina a good place for them to come film the shots that they wanted to get were the wood ducks actually hatching and jumping out of the cavity and falling into the swamp so the director of the waterfowl association said you need to call doug gardner and so they did and we started working on the project and it was a much different project than any other production I've had to do. Generally, uh, they'll call you up and they'll say, we're doing a project or a film about such and such. And we be here on a certain day and start filming whatever we tell you to film. That's kind of the way it goes. It's, it's a typical assignment work. This was much different. They called up and they said, you know more about this than, than we do. Can you do all the logistics setting up? Give us a budget for it. I said, Sure. So I set everything up, gave them a budget for it, and I, you know, because I know so much about wood ducks, I just, you know, I knew this was going to be a slam dunk. I could have this 
whole thing, nesting sequence done, you know, in a few weeks during the right time, during the spring of the year. Let me, let me say that during, uh, you know, March, uh, April time. So they asked me another big question, which was what kind of guarantees do we have? I said, like, well, first of all, there are no guarantees. And they, yeah, we know that, but oh, do we have any backup plans? And so what I ended up having to do, they called me in September and they wanted to film in the spring of the following year. So what I ended up having to do is I started, as soon as the weather started to cool down, all the leaves got off the tree so I could see up in the canopy. I went in, put my waders on and started wading the swamps, literally wading miles a day. And it's a very slow go. It's uh, for, nat- for natural reasons, you know, it's, it's mud and deep water and crawling over logs, but it's slow because I'm looking up at the trees, at the tops of the trees, trying to find nesting cavities, wood ducks nesting in cavities in trees, generally cypress trees. As I walk through the forest, you know, you have to look every side of each tree in order to find these cavities. So I went through for weeks on the end, marking trees that I found cavities that I thought would be suitable for wood ducks to nest in. And they, there are certain things that, that, you know, that go into a suitable cavity. First of all, the size of it, which way it faces, how high off the ground, how close other limbs are to it for predators to get to them. You know, all these things go into it. So when I look, I just don't find a hole in a tree and say, oh, yeah, a wood duck might nest in that. Generally, wood ducks will start pair bonding in December and January, and they will actually breed by late January and start actually looking for cavities and, and nesting in cavities by February, depending on the temperature, because they can't start laying those eggs. South in Carolina. Yes, all this is in South Carolina, yes. Okay. Yeah, cypress swamps in South Carolina. So... What I had to do is I had to start monitoring when they would start actually nesting because in order to get the footage of the wood ducks actually hatching and jumping out of the cavity, because this is a one this is a one time event. Once they do it, they don't go back in. They're they're out for good. It's a matter of you could miss the whole thing that you've worked on for months in a matter of seconds, literally, if you don't do the timing right. So you have to kind of work everything backwards. So I have a question. So Two, I actually have two questions. The height of the cavity, I'm sure they have a preferred height. But the other thing I wanted to confirm, and I'm sure this is the case because of the worry of predation at, at night, is you're guaranteed that these ducklings will launch out of the cavity during daylight hours, right? Yes. It is always a morning event, and it's always an early morning event. Obviously, they don't do it at night because predators can see them and get them before they have a chance to to get to cover. But Generally, it is a early morning event, and when I say early morning, I haven't, I've never seen it happen earlier than, say, 45 minutes after sunrise. So the sun is up pretty good, and they, you know, obviously they do that so that the filmmaker can get great footage, of course, right? <laughs> <laughs> but so anyway, so yeah, so we 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 mark the trees that we think were suitable cavities, and. Uh, and then starting in January, I literally have to sit there. There's no easy way to do this. I sit there morning after morning after morning and just let the wood ducks come in, sit on the water. They'll feed, they'll breed, they'll fight with one another, they'll sleep. And then the females will start, you'll see them start looking up in the tops of the trees and swimming around in circles and they're looking for cavities. And you'll hear one or see one just kind of launch itself and flutter up. 
and hang on the edge of a hole and start checking it out. And she may go in it. She may not. She may just look in it and then fly back down to the water. A few minutes later or seconds later, she'll do it again and check it out again. And this could go on and on and on all day. And it can go on day after day until she has either deemed this cavity suitable or not suitable, or she's moved on to find another one. So once I know that a hen has discovered one, I would I'd go in there at night. And a lot of the work that I do has to be done at night. The wood ducks don't roost in the same place that they're uh, looking for these cavities. They'll They'll be roosting somewhere else. They'll spend most of the day somewhere else. But generally, they'll come into an area that they're going to feed, and that's when they start looking for the cavities. So once uh, once they, they've selected a cavity, uh, I go in there at night, and I put up uh, motion cameras, the, the ones that actually will call your cell phone. It will, you know, it's motion detected. It'll, yeah, cellular, right. So uh, I will get a little ding on my phone when something trips that camera. And I mount that camera right by the hole so that when anytime she's going and coming, uh, I know there's activity and there's constant activity. I know exactly what time it is. So I do all, I set all these cameras up at night, come back down the tree and then just start waiting. When I see her going in the cavity and staying in there for five or 10 minutes at a time, at that point, I know that she's actually laying eggs. Well, because I am certified and have the, the field experience to do it, um, after I think that she has started laying eggs, I will actually climb up there at night and actually look in there and inspect and see if there is eggs, and if so, how many. But see, a wood duck, they, when they nest, they generally lay 12 to 14 eggs in a clutch. Now, a young one can go crazy and lay 20, but the chances of her actually... Uh, you know, hatching that many out or slim to none because you can't heat all those eggs and can't incubate them. So they'll lay one egg a day for 12 to 14 days. And once I know the, when the first egg was laid and the date and time, then I start really watching that cavity very carefully around the around the 10th day is when I really start watching. I'm in there all day. And what she'll do is she'll literally fly in there in the morning, generally with the drake, sit on the water, go up, Go in the hole, lay the egg, in three to five minutes, she's out of there, and she doesn't come back until the next day. So once I see her going on the camera, I'll see her go in the hole, and she stays 20 minutes, an hour, two hours, three hours. Um, at that point, I know she's already started to incubate, and I start the timer, 28 days. From, tw- from that day, on the 28th day after that, those little baby ducklings are coming out of that hole. It don't matter if it's raining, storming, high winds, they're coming out of that hole. So generally what I start doing is around the 26th day, the morning of the 26th day, I usually start sitting in there full time just in case I'm off by a day, you know, when I originally saw the first egg and figured out that she was incubating. So back to the BBC, they, you know, I'm having to do all this work throughout the winter. And so it was a daily thing just working on this one project and before the bbc wanted they kind of wanted a guarantee so i had multiple sites that i was having to watch so i had multiple cameras out had multiple locations i'd check one see the duck go in and out go to the next one you know i may not see her i may have missed her but i'd go and i'd check the cameras and stuff so it was just an ongoing daily thing but before they start even started nesting i had to kind of out of all the cavities that I chose as as prime spots to nest in, I had to pick like five of them and say, 
these have the best opportunity. Everything's right for as far as camera wise. The lighting's going to be best from this direction. The background is going to be the best. Uh, logistically, you know, we can get to this. And so we had to come in and build steel platforms. And these were huge two story towers. They were, um, well, the, the tallest one we did was 30 feet. And the shortest one we did was nine feet. The very top of the platform would be level with whatever cavity we were going to film at that location. And the bottom platform would be a little lower than water level. So these platforms are sitting in three to four feet of water. And the bottom platform is just under it so that when a cameraman is sitting on the platform on the bottom, he can get that beautiful low perspective you know pretty, pretty much a uh, another duckling's eye level is what you want i mean we had you know a hundred thousand dollar camera literally an inch from the water so it gives you a beautiful perspective but all this work how these towers had to be built prior to the birds nesting so that we wouldn't go in there and and disturb the nest and so it was a major gamble that they were even going to use the nest so you know, we picked the cavities and I brought welders in on platforms and uh, had all these guys, these welders that some of them never been in a swamp before. To some of them were, were right at home, but we had welders out there and we welded up these steel platforms, covered them with camouflage. And that way, by the time the bird got to the cavity and started nesting, they knew it, knew, didn't know any different from another tree out there. And there was all we had to do was slip in there and the cover of darkness and start filming on the morning of the of the shoot so we did all this work and it was getting about uh it was getting about three weeks up to the time that i thought we were gonna have our first nest event and the rat snakes and the raccoons and the woodpeckers started coming in and predating all of my nest and i was like oh my gosh what am i gonna do uh, the first nest, I had a rat snake go in and eat every egg in it. And we were a few, just a few days out from, uh, from that one hatching. The next nest, a uh, raccoon went in one night at three in the morning. My phone's going bing, 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 bing. All these pictures start popping up. My wife's going, who is texting you at three in the morning? And I was like, it's the, my nest cam. I look at it and there's a raccoon with his head in the hole and he's completely covered in yolk. And it's just going all down the side of the tree, got in there and just mashed up all the eggs and was eating the yolk. Then a third nest started getting predated by yellow shafted flickers. They, they don't, they don't eat the eggs. They just want the cavity for themselves to nest. So they'll go in and actually punch holes in the eggs and try to destroy the eggs. And in hopes that the, the hen wood duck would just give up and leave and they can take the cavity at that point. So it predation got pretty bad. And it got to the point that I started babysitting the last two nests and I called the BBC and I, you know, I would give them, you know, weekly updates and I'd take pictures and give them, you know, very detailed updates. And I called the lady and I said, uh, the producer, I said, I'm sorry to tell you that, um, I've blown your budget and <laughs> your, most of the nests have been, have been predated. And she said, stop right there. And she said, we're the BBC. We're 92 years old. There's not a place on this earth we haven't been. And there's very little we haven't, we haven't filmed. And we've got the money for these budgets. And so I started babysitting those last two nests. And um, it, everything went good. I mean, I would literally, I would see a, a, a flicker coming toward the nest or a snake coming toward the nest. And I would get out there and 
you know, flag off and wave my hands and scare off the flicker and, uh, or go relocate the snake, you know, if I saw them. So it was, uh, it was a pain. It was a real pain, but it was absolutely the most rewarding film that I've ever done because I put in seven months of work into what took us, uh, five minutes to, to film. And, uh, and it was, it was absolutely amazing. And that's, that's where you get the reward from, you know, it's, 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 it's not a get rich quick thing. I, I mean, everybody on this podcast can attest to that. If you're getting into wildlife photography to get rich, uh, you need to go ahead and sell your stuff on eBay and, you know, and do something else. Um, it's, it's all about reward and it's all about a passion. I think we can all attest to that. Right. That's an awesome yeah, story. Absolutely. Yeah. I love hearing that story because it just shows how much work goes into a lot of these films. Right. You know, I, I shoot a lot of stuff, but I've, never done a whole natural history film where you actually have to do that much pre-production work just to assure that the production stuff's going to actually go down. I think Mark does a lot of that. He'll work that many hours, but a lot of the stuff, when you take the stills you've got, you work that many hours on the processing and writing the articles and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, everybody puts in a lot of work. It just is different. We all do it differently, right? We all spend our time right. doing different things in different spots. So I think it's pretty cool for the listeners to be able to hear just that perspective on that. Absolutely. And then, you know, on top of everything that you were doing in the field, you also were kind of posting a step-by-step on social media. That's how I initially found out about your project and, and started kind of following along. Yeah, and that's tough. You know, I, I want to share with people, you know, what we do and how we do it. It's a lot of fun. You know, I, I'm proud of what I do. And, um, and and a lot of people, you know, really have an interest in, in what we do. So I, I do try to post, you know, kind of what we're doing, updates uh, on social media as much as possible. But you have to be really careful, especially when you're working on assignment for networks. This industry is brutally competitive as is to say the least and they don't want really anything about their any upcoming uh, production being mentioned you know Mm -hmm. out there because you know somebody else could be working on the same thing and it could be a matter of you know days between two people releasing a very similar film so you know it's a it's crazy you got to be very careful about what what you post but i do try to to post what i can when i can you know the story the effort is epic that you put into this, you know, and, and I, you know, props to BBC for funding the budget to get this done right. You know, I, 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 you know, there would be those companies that say, I'll just try that, that week. We know they're hatching out in, you know, this part of that month, go out there and try, but to, to get it done right, to hit their, their production timetable and to plan ahead of time and to pay you properly hats off to that organization. But I, what I want to conclude is I've seen these, I've seen images. I've never had the privilege of watching wood ducks come out of the cavity, the ducklings. I've seen them on the road crossing in the summer and, you know, they're the cutest little things, but to see that leap of faith that yeah. they do is one of the cutest things on this planet. And the it's fact that be the scariest, they're so high up and they're so small <laughs> I know that they won't get hurt because they have that low body mass, right? right. No right, matter exactly. what the height is, they don't have any heavy bones. But the fact, you know, from our perspective, no way in the world am I jumping off the top of the CN Tower. And that's kind of <laughs> what that's what they're doing to get out of these holes. 
So to be able to yeah, film 60, that. Yeah, 60 to 80 feet um, is a common height. Uh, average is about 24 to 30. And uh, we, we've seen them as low as, as four feet. And four feet's not good because uh, snakes can get to them very, very easily. So, I had no idea. When you told me about this, I was picturing four feet. When you told me two years ago when you did this, I was just picturing like a little bloop. But if it's sixty feet, that's that is that's amazing. But it's got to be so oh, cool yeah. to be able to shoot it when you're doing slow mo, and you see them come out, and you're able to follow that duckling. All that's got to be awesome. You know, now, you're sitting there, and, and and you're trying to catch that moment so of, of the jump, and you know, building a proper sequence is all about getting all the different angles because you, you got to you got to tell the entire story and you got to do it all at one time with something like this i got one shot at this it's not okay let's reset and i will go for a wide now and okay let's reset and let's go for a tight it doesn't work like that you it's up to you to kind of watch the situation and okay i know what's going through i'll just tell you what was going through my mind so up to the event I know it's getting ready to happen because the hen is sitting on the water and she's calling. She starts making this horrible noise and she calls to him. And then you can start hearing beep, 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 beep. They start peeping in the hole. And then you start seeing little heads jumping up and down inside. the. They're trying to get out. And uh, then the first one jumps up onto the, the rim of the, the hole there, the cavity. And you don't know you don't know what moment he's just going to spring and go. But you've got to be ready. But you're going, okay, I know there's 12 of them in there. So, okay, I need to, you know, I want to try to get the, a tight of this one sitting on the hole, that cute shot, and then a, a tight of him jumping. And then I need to follow a couple of them all the way down. Then I want a wide establishing shot. I want to get shots of them hitting the water with the hen right there beside them. So already I've got six things that are very difficult to do, you know, and it's all happening. And especially the, 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 tougher shot which is following that little rascal all the way down keeping him in focus all the way down very very difficult and uh and i was running two cameras at one time that was the other thing that i didn't tell you so i had one camera that i had remotely set up below me down with the producer down there and i was running it off of an ipad above and that one was locked off but the one that I was actually had my hands on at the top of the platform, that one, you know, I, I can move it. And that's the one I was having to follow it. And so, and, you know, so it was, it was very difficult. And, and you're going through your mind, am I going to be able to get all these shots, you know? And I got very lucky. I was very fortunate, very fortunate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think and, it's a lot of, a um, lot of hard work and, a, and then you got the luck that follows the hard yeah. work. Uh, it was, it was, it, it was the biggest high i've ever had in my life that one event that was the event i was like it was above everything else in my life i've had scary things happen i've had you know wonderful things happen you know getting married and all that kind of stuff but just the euphoria <laughs> you're not supposed just, to include that one <laughs> well it's just i'm just saying there's a lot you know there's a lot of those high moments in your life for your personal a, soul a, <laughs> yeah, for what I do, it's just, you know, it was it was amazing. I mean, I've, I've, I've been in Desert Storm. I've seen a lot of stuff. So, But it was that. It was just this euphoria and adrenaline rush, and it all came together. And I'd have to lie if I didn't tell you that I shed a little tear sitting up on top of that blind that morning. It was just unbelievable. So, And, you know, and I, I think the producers, they saw that. They saw the passion that I had 
for what I do. And they realized and actually publicly stated on one of their forums that had I not been there to do that for them with the knowledge that I had of them, that they would have never gotten the sequence done in time. And so, you know, that that kind of stuff is just is just what it really makes it all worthwhile you know for me well thanks for sharing that and and also that's what led to you know that's what leads to like when you do a good job it leads to the next job right <laughs> which was um the latest one was mississippi and which was a lot of swamp work so thank goodness i love the swamp that's awesome we could go into the mississippi but i think we had to save that for another oh, yeah. one because that would be another one an hour and a half into this so gear wise just what are you using just so that people kind of have an idea of what what's going on out there and do you shoot stills too for to document this stuff or are you just strictly video oh yeah i still shoot stills you know there's still a soft spot in my heart for the steel camera of course and uh, so I, I always carry my steel camera with me and shoot some stills here and there and and i still have a i still have somewhat of a stock uh business you know stock steel business that i have to feed and uh, so I haven't given it up completely, but uh, video is definitely uh, my main priority now. And that's where the, the main source of my income, my business is, is, is through cinematography. But uh, I'm shooting red, just like you, uh, Mike. It's a wonderful camera. It's, uh, I, I guess the, the reason I like it so much is that it's modular and you can kind of design the camera any way you want for whatever application you're using. And you can switch. The, one of the biggest pluses for me is the fact that I can switch frame rates so easily. I can shoot super slow-mo literally with the, just a tap of a button and, and then another tap of a button, I'm back to, you know, shooting at regular sync speed. So, you know, that was one of the selling features for me, for sure. But, yeah, I use Canon glass uh, on my red and some Zeiss glass. I love that Zeiss glass. There's nothing like, nothing like that. I don't know if you guys have ever shot stills with Zeiss, but it's, uh, it's incredible stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's reflected in the price. Yes, it is. <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> I was just doing research just this week on a new lens for the red that was a Zeiss lens. And it was, I, I fell out of my chair when I found out the cost of that one. And it was just a small one. It's just like an 18 to 80. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You, you, you can get really wrapped up in gear and, uh, and spend a lot of money real quick. And uh, I got a, a buddy who is a total gearhead, and he will send me constant texts about, oh, did you hear Canon's coming out with this or Nikon's coming out with that? And, you know, I, I don't even listen to that stuff. But, you know, he starts getting into the fact that, oh, I wish they'd make a lens that, you know, they've got the technology. They can do it. And, uh, and you know what? I found out when I, when I held this beautiful lens, it's called a 50 to 1,000 that Canon makes they proved that with that one lens that anything they want to make optically is possible, you know, uh, but it comes with a severe price tag. That's probably the most expensive lens I, 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 that I know of, I believe, but it is, uh, it's unbelievable. It can be done. I like seeing the pictures of you with that lens sitting in the swamp an inch off the water. <laughs> yeah, seventy-two thousand dollar lens. It uh, it definitely makes you um, think twice before you cross over that next log, and you know. But you know, it's just like it's a tool, just like a carpenter car and his hammer. He's not afraid to use it. And as long as you buy your insurance, you're all good, right? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And I've used it a few times. <laughs> cool. So, Doug, you're working with the red. Uh, video requires a lot more stable platform and you're not going to get that in a, in a flat bottom boat, which I've seen you work out of a lot for your stills. 
what are you using in the swamp to get around and be able to shoot in? Well, you know, that's always been a problem, a huge problem, uh, stability when you're working in swamp. Uh, and when the, uh, and I take a, I take a jumbo generally out in the swamp. That's what I work out of. But most of the time I'm trying to find locations that I can, is shallow enough that I can actually get out of the boat into the water and get sticks on the ground, you know, and, uh, and a lot of times it's just not possible. And for years I've had a huge problem with, with, you know, having to turn down amazing opportunities. I mean, things that I'll never see again in my life because the water was too deep for me to get out and actually stand up and the boat's just rocking, you know, rocking, moving. Even on a calm day when the water is slick as glass, there's that ever slight roll to the water and the boat's moving everywhere. So about five years ago, I came up with an idea for uh, a custom built boat that had hydraulic stabilizers on it and never could figure out exactly how to go about doing this um and it wasn't until this past year that i started putting my thoughts on paper and really started designing this thing and, and working with other people to see if my ideas would actually work and i got together with a company down in florida called uh, florida hydraulics and we started working on this and this summer is when i really put the rubber to the road and and started you know getting things built and I have spent all summer working on this. And the way I started out is a pond, a small pontoon boat, which is uh, 12 feet long. It's a very small pontoon and it had a weight capacity. It was a two man fishing boat is what it was. It was just a small made for small ponds and that kind of thing. But I knew that it was a two man boat and the weight capacity was only 480 pounds for the whole boat and uh you know me and all my gear and everything i, I was going to be over that limit and i was wanting to put a you know a gasoline engine on it and it was only uh rated for an electric motor trolling motor so um so i added a tritune to to this boat so it's a, it's pardon, a tritune pardon, now. pardon me pardon me yeah no what's a tritune <laughs> or a tritone <laughs> A tritune. It's a third. It's, three, a thir it's a third, third pontoon. Yeah, thir yeah, yeah, third yeah. pontoon. It sits in the middle of it. Yes, <laughs> and uh, so uh, I, I, you know, I have a, a good buddy who's a, a, a welder, and uh, we started working on the thing. We we put a third tune under the bottom of it. Um, this thing was completely stripped down, and started working it back up, new floors, and we came up with a hydraulic, uh, four hydraulic cylinders that are welded to each corner of the boat. And then it has uh, long eight foot aluminum legs that are actually telescopic to 16 feet uh, that slide down. So I, when I get in position, I have a depth finder. I look at the depth finder. If it's, if it's less than 16 feet, I know, you know, I'm good to go. And so I drop those uh, legs down into the water and they have big feet on the bottom 12 inch square feet so they don't sink into the mud they just kind of sit on top of it and i'll set a pin um, in the legs so they don't move and at that point i have four hydraulic valves in the back of the boat and turn the, the hydraulic pump on and it literally pushes the feet down into the mud which actually raises the boat up out of the water so now the weight of the boat is actually resting on the feet on the bottom of the swamp or the river or whatever I'm at instead of floating. So now I'm not affected by tide or wind or waves hitting the side of the boat. And it's just a rock solid platform. Uh, it, you know, I, I did a lot of testing with it to, to make this whole thing work. And, and, uh, when I was talking with the guy at the hydraulics place in Florida, he said, now 
this pump has it produces five thousand pounds of pressure he said he said if you're not careful you're going to tie that aluminum boat into a knot and uh he said so you be very gentle with it it will rip this thing apart uh because you know the boat's not very very heavy and uh so we, there was a lot of experimenting we we broke a lot of parts trying to get this thing to work right but now it works um i've camouflaged it down to look like cypress trees and uh and vegetation and uh it's got all the wonderful things you need like a phone charger on it and headlights <laughs> running lights and <laughs> air spray it's uh, yeah it, it's uh, no it, it works really well surprisingly it works well so one of my concerns, and I haven't grown up in a swamp, so I don't, I don't okay. have this firsthand experience. But when you plant these feet and you have this hydro hydraulic pressure, I mean, it sounds like the perfect setup. You no longer have to wait in there for these scenarios, and right. slip over your head or worry about the camera. You've got this great solid platform. But when you're done with the shoot and your hydraulics have pushed these 12-inch feet into the muck on the bottom, have you ever had a problem pulling them back up? No. So what I did is I, I made the, the feet slightly concave and I okay. drilled one inch holes all in it so that they can't create a, a, a vacuum or suction on the bottom. And, you know, the, like I said, the boat is not very heavy. Uh, and with my weight and my gear, you know, we're not talking a total of a thousand pounds total with motor and everything. So divided between four legs, you know, we're talking about 250 pounds per foot. And that weight is dispersed over a 12 inch platform speech okay. one. So, you know, so I've, yeah, it's, it could had, be a problem. I've had boots in bogs in Newfoundland come off my feet. <laughs> so yeah. I'm just visualizing what it's like when you have that much more weight. I'd hate to yeah. try to pull the feet up and be like, okay, well, we're here. We're here for a while. <laughs> well, I do but, have a safety feature built in. So um, oh. there's, there's a, there are pins in the, the, the legs. Um, and they're tractor pins. And you can just you could grab it and pull it out, and the leg would just shoot up out of the water. So, oh, wow. Well yeah. thought of, man. Wow. Yeah. Great design. Yeah, yeah so that's it, pretty it, awesome. Yeah. It ought to open all kinds of doors so that you can take on those dream projects that you've had to turn huge, down. Huge, huge, huge. And, you know, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, if we had it on the Mississippi shoot that I worked on for 18 months, I could have used it every single day, you know. So it's something that could be rented out, you know, for filming crews easily. And I've already thinking about a version 2.0 which is uh, which is going to be larger. You could hold maybe a three or four man crew on it, and uh, a large enough engine that you know you could move from place to place pretty fast. So um, uh, for sure, I'm a visualizing future, a future podcast in the swamp on the boat. Oh, yeah. Hey, you guys Someday. need to come down. You know, we we all love we all love the Rockies and the West, right? And all the big mammals and and stuff out there. You look. You need to come enjoy let me let me introduce the swamp to you and i want to convert y'all gonna be my first people that i convert into uh loving the swamp well i'll be in sc this winter so if there's a if it, if it matches up then yeah it would be awesome absolutely yeah sure so what's the best time to be in the swamp you know every part of the year it has something to offer uh spring everything's alive every the cypress trees are lush green it's this it's this, it's a shade of green that you can't even describe it it looks like it glows and you know so you've got all all kind of swamp vegetation that's blooming and you know 
all the animals have babies. So everything is, everything's nesting, everything's got babies, everything's out moving around. So, um, that's wonderful. In summer, you know, it has completely different things to offer. That's when our osprey are hatching out and starting to fledge, which is one of my favorite things to do, uh, in the swamp because something unique about the area where I'm at is we have an enormous amount of nesting osprey and the average height of our nest are about 12 feet. And I have some, that are literally 18 inches off the water. So you think about everywhere else in the world that you've seen osprey nesting, how high are they? 60, 80, 100 feet. And they're usually on a telephone pole. These are on cypress trees or cypress stumps. And so, you know, summer is wonderful for that. You have prothonotary warblers all summer. Then you start moving into fall and the swamp turns into this rust red, just palette of color that's unbelievable and your waterfowl starts moving in the deer start using the swamp more now you know so when winter comes you know we have ducks everywhere uh swan uh, geese so it's you know every season has something different to offer in in the swamp for sure a lot less mosquitoes in the winter (laughs) that maybe that's our winter trip for our podcast Yeah, man. Nice. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. For our yeah. listeners' sake, then I encourage everybody to go to wildandexposed.com and go to the WE podcast page and see today's podcast with Doug Gardner and, and look at some of the photos of the boat as well as these amazingly cute wood ducks popping out of their tree cavities, making the big jump into the real yeah. world. Into the real world, for sure. Probably have some of that... Uh, footage too do they well yeah you... so i was gonna tell you i do have uh, i do have a link to that whole sequence um oh, that i can that i could link, put on your on your page that would be awesome yeah yeah so that that would be our listeners would love to see that i would too because i know yeah. i've i've seen it once or twice in documentaries that like i said never in real life but it's one of the cutest tests of faith that i've that i've i've seen through other people's work right to see it in real person like you had would be incredible too so it's I, uh, it's I, pretty neat so we talked earlier today on today's podcast about a surprise since last early december the wild and exposed podcast team has been a tripod of michael ron and myself and we have been working diligently at building this product this show for your enjoyment and we launched in july so we went through a lot of different trips we recorded podcasts we built a bunch of them and we launched a whole bunch in july and we're now a couple of months since our launch and we're very excited with the traction we've been receiving thank you for listening showing us the love and tuning in and and checking out and subscribing but today in in an effort to diversify our team and to bring more talent on board with more storytelling and more background experience and information that we can share with you, we're going to go from being a tripod to a quartet. And we know there are lots of successful quartets out there. So Mike, Ron, and I want to welcome Doug Gardner as one of the co-hosts of Wild and Exposed podcast for your future enjoyment. And uh, Doug will obviously be commonplace going forward. So welcome, Doug. I do appreciate it, and I am looking forward to it. You know, the unique thing about this is that we all bring something different to the table, a different perspective, a different type of shooting, uh, even just different interest in general. And, you know, we've got – now we've got – 
both cinematographers and still photographers, which, you know, even though they're different, they're the same. And uh, so I think this is going to work out really well. I think uh, everybody can can enjoy the, the diversity that we will be able to offer. I agree. I agree. And, and we are all about fun. F-U-N. We've all been successful in this field and we love what we do. And so the fact that we can take you with us on our trips and do podcasts and do vlogs, you know, go to our YouTube channel at Wild and Exposed Podcast. Search that on YouTube. You'll see our one to two minute vlogs, video shorts that we do to help you come along with us. And this only diversifies that product for us as well. So we're really excited and uh, want to share not only our gear tips and, and our how-tos and, and how we get from A to B and the experiences we have, but simply allow you to share the enjoyment with us, whether it be hiking the tundra with caribou and moose or whether it be watching wood duck ducklings pop out of their tree nest as well. Get on board, wildandexposed.com, and we are really excited today to welcome Doug in as part of the team. And, and Michael and Ron have known him for a long time and have said nothing but fabulous things about him. So... And he's showing me the big heart emoji on the screen. So you gotta love that. Fun, fun to be had. I had one other thing. Last time I talked to you, or last time we talked on text, you sent me a picture of this little itty bitty tick on your forearm. And you were fixing to go to the ER to sit there for three or four hours to get your antibiotics so that you could ward off the Lyme disease. What happened? You're talking about Henry? Yeah, Henry the tick. Oh, actually, I never. <laughs> I never gave it a name. We weren't we weren't bonded. In fact, I don't feel that way at all about ticks. And where I live in where I live in, in southern Ontario, to give you a little bit of history, ten years ago, this did not exist. But nowadays, it's commonplace, and people have to be smart and diligent when they're in the field any time but the heart of winter, especially spring and autumn. So I picked up in summertime. You don't see the adult black-legged ticks very often and they've been dubbed the deer tick but they're not they they host on many different species field mice being the most common and birds as well and that's how they get from a to b and and, and geese along shorelines so usually it's shorelines they get populated first with these ticks but the point is once they're here they're here and you have to be smart and learn about them and so each year it's become exponentially worse uh, where I live in southern Ontario. Used to be, like I said, 10 years ago, I could roll around in the forest or the fields and never think about having to look at my waist or my knees or my pants or my boots or anything for ticks. But nowadays, I have to look down every 20 steps and I pick them off my light-colored pants, put them in a pill bottle, put them in a Ziploc baggie and throw them in the freezer. 48 hours, they're dead. Same thing as far as uh, practical protocol is to also take off the outer, outer layer. I throw it in a clear recycling bag and throw it in deep freeze for 48 hours. So my clothes, if there are any ticks I've missed, end up uh, perishing in there and I don't put them back on when I put my clothes back on again. Another tip I have, another hack, I've got a good friend who spends a lot of time in the wilderness and he has a hot tub. Lucky guy. And so when <laughs> When he comes home, he throws his clothes in the plastic bag, in the freezer, they go for 48 hours. And of course, he gets the luxury of enjoying the hot tub. And that clears any ticks off of him because they need to be able to breathe. So that's another thing as well. So showering is good. I always have a shower when I come in from the field. And it's not just the showering, but you got to scrub everywhere because those little guys stick to you. And then towel hard, you know, and no, that's not a joke. And uh, because you got to wipe them off. But anyway, there aren't that many that 
you know, but they are, they are. There sneaky. aren't that many that latch on. Right. I mean, there's right. tons of ticks. There are tons of ticks. I'm, I'm trying to say by toweling off, it's not like they're falling off like rain onto the floor. <laughs> there might, there might be one or two on you. You just have to be diligent because you can't let even that one escape because up to 50% of them research has shown that can carry Lyme. So you, in some areas, so you've got to be very careful about that. So what happened Mark, to me? I was going to say, as you interject real quick, you, um, I use a chemical called permanone, which is the active ingredient permethrin, and right. you treat your, your clothes with it. And it's actually good for seven washings. And it not only repels ticks, but it kills the one that comes in contact. And seven years ago, I started using that product and I have since had never had another tick on me. It's amazing stuff. Works so really well. I have some of that and mm -hmm. I haven't used it yet. And I've been heard favorable things about it. We cannot buy it in Ontario and you cannot buy it in New York state. I oh, have, okay. I have a friend that goes down to visit uh, relatives in Pennsylvania each December and he picks it up and brings it back. He just picks it up in the outdoor stores in Pennsylvania and the people that he knows down there who are in the outdoors all the time swear by it. Like what you're saying, the one thing they have said about it is they buy a pair of outer layer coveralls and they put them on the clothesline outside when there's a good breeze. So they have, they have the wind to their favor and they do a generous application to those coveralls. Those coveralls, they say, and these guys are pretty hardcore guys, let me say, without going behind the scenes. They never let those coveralls touch their skin. It's always mm -hmm. an outer layer. So they have their base layer, and then they have those treated coveralls. So to be honest, I am going to employ that this fall. I've got a bottle of it, and I'm going to use it. I'm going to get some coveralls because I do a lot of white-tailed deer photography, and I'm in the forest, and I have to be to get it done right. So I'm going to try that with the coveralls. So there are all these different stages. And in that, I mean, it's just a chemical that you have to be careful with. And right. I, think if you, I think if you do it right, as you say, if you haven't had a tick in seven years, that's a big deal. It, um, it works. It works well. But you don't yeah. want it. To, you don't want it to, in contact with your skin. Um, you know, like you said, the coverall thing is the best way to go. Okay. So what happened to me, as Mike brought up in the beginning, was being summertime. So the ticks lay their eggs in the spring. They have their blood meal. They lay their eggs, whatever the blood meal may be on, migratory songbird, goose, or a uh, mouse or a deer, etc. Um, or your pet dog, unfortunately, because you don't feel them until they're jelly bean size and half of them have popped off by then and gone and laid their eggs anyway. In the summertime, it's the baby ticks that are out. So this was a little, little tiny larva baby tick. Ticks, black-legged ticks have four generations that they go through. They shed their exoskeleton and get bigger. It's not apparently according to my Google search, until the second generation, the nymph stage, that they become potentially infected with Lyme because they've already fed on a host. If that host, being potentially a field mouse, if that field mouse had Lyme, the nymph would then have it after that larval stage blood meal. So the larva that I had should not have been carrying Lyme, and it was a tiny little thing. I went to the hospital. Thankfully, I had an article to write, and I sat there on, on my laptop, and it was only two hours to their credit and uh but what was funny i kept looking at my elbow and he was on the outside of my arm so i'm wait or it was waiting for it to move and pop up i can't lose this little thing it falls to the floor it's gone and i've got no reason to talk to anybody at the er <laughs> so 
when I show up, I say to my doctor, the doctor there, I said, I've got the smallest case you've seen today. And he's like, prove it. I'm like, ha ha ha, look at this. And this little thing, it was funny, just within two minutes before the doctor arrived, popped out and started to walk away. And so I dropped it onto the bedding sheet in the AR room. I had a Ziploc baggie with me, fed it in there and zipped it. And historically, at least here, they'd send the ticks off for testing to see whether it had Lyme. And of course, the doctor's like, how in the world did you see this tiny little thing? And I'm like, I just looked at my elbow and I know I don't have a little blood blister the size of a period on a piece of paper there. And I noticed it. Well, it was a tick. I knew it was. And they just throw them out now. The problem is they're so commonplace that they don't test them anymore because it takes three to six months to get testing back. It's expensive. And the person, if it takes six months, you know, they're infected for a significant duration by that time. So instead, the ticks get tossed and they just uh, prescribe antibiotics right away to the person who's been bitten. And as you pointed out, Michael, ticks don't, these black-legged ticks don't bite immediately. It's not like a mosquito or deer fly landing on you and just burrowing in and getting a blood meal. They'll crawl around up to 24 hours on the potential host trying to find that sweet spot. Uh, thin part of the skin, a warm spot. And so you've got time to have a shower when you get back from the outdoors, put your clothes in the freezer and be careful. And if you have a loved one, you know you have a tick check and have some fun and some laughs over that. <laughs> but it's important for all wildlife photographers to be aware of it and be diligent about it and just be careful. And, you know, and the way I look at it at the end of the day, it's not going to stop me from being in the outdoors because it's who I am. It's a matter of, of being smart and careful. And in all honesty, I also enjoy, you know, when I head to the north, it's, it's so refreshing, not just the clean air, but once again, I can run through the tundra or the boreal forests and not be uh, checking my knees anymore. But in the south, it's important to uh, just be smart about it. So that's the story about the tick. And thankfully, I didn't take, I got the antibiotics. I didn't take them because the antibiotics is a two-week cycle and you can't be in the sun. For those two weeks, because you burn super fast, it takes away and your you mel can't drink a beer. melatonin. <laughs> Who drinks beer? Okay. <laughs> so, so knowing I'm heading to the far north and I want to hike all day, I you know that was the other thing. But thankfully, with the larval tick, the first stage, they're not supposed to carry Lyme. So I'm going to go on that for now, and uh, it's hopefully a ha happy ending to this micro story. Wow, it's a lot like uh, malaria. For a lot of the natives in Africa, they can't take the malaria medication all the time. So they just have to wait till they get it. And then they just are so aware of it that they know when they have it. So then they can go take care of it. I bet you Lyme disease is going to become like that, where there's no way you can constantly take antibiotics every time you get bit by a tick, right? Well, that's it. I've had three doses already. So I, I picked off probably 200 ticks last fall off my clothing. Um, and one got me. And so I've been... There's been actually four other times I've had to go on antibiotics. But how many times is it good for a body to go through that? Right. So if you don't have to, you want to avoid it. But Lyme disease is serious business. So the antibiotics, if, if, you know, if, if you, somebody has been bitten, they need to take it. But, you know, it's something in the news this week. We don't know where this is going to go medically. I read there was a vaccine that came out years ago. And it was by a company in the United States, and it was deemed to be effective. But there was a class action lawsuit because some people had some other symptoms that they sued the company for. And so the profit margin, from what I read, and this is hearsay uh, just based on this one article I read, um, the profit margin wasn't significant enough to, 
for the company to persist and keep manufacturing this vaccine with these lawsuits pending. So they canned it. They got rid of the vaccine. Now I've heard there's a company in Europe that has come up with an equally viable vaccine. And so there was discussion, at least in this popular media article in the news, that whether it's something that should be brought back. Because I know where I live, more and more people that I bump into are dealing with or have themselves or heard of people with Lyme disease and, or have had tick bites or been on antibiotics. It's commonplace, you know, anybody who does anything. And it can be in, your, in someone's yard. You know, they're not typically on mold grass or normally in the forest and wet and damp areas, but they can be anywhere. If it's below a bird feeder uh, on mold grass, it's a possibility. I picked them up there um, in the summertime so and in autumn, too. And they're quite active through October and November as far as the uh, third and adult stage of the tick, right until everything's frozen. So just be smart. That's all I'm saying. Enjoy the outdoors, but be smart about it in areas where there are black legged ticks or not to prolong this. I don't want to scare people, but or the North Star tick, which is another one that's moving up the northeast coast. And that's a tick with a white dot on its abdomen. And a North Star tick, when it bites somebody, makes it so they can no longer digest protein, meat, red meat protein, which is a significant change of lifestyle for a lot of people. So to be aware of ticks and just be smart about tick country. And hey, maybe we all need to invest in jacuzzi uh, hot tub companies and, and uh, see what goes <laughs> <laughs> where, the, where that goes. For sure. <laughs> so uh, thanks for the update on that. I think it's really good information to put out there. The last thing that I wanted to cover was Next week, you'll be in the far north, and we're going to do some podcasts up there, right? Well, uh, you know, it's exciting. This is the first trip I'm going on that I'm bringing along a cameraman to help with the vlogs. And why I'm bringing him is he's in his mid-20s. He just graduated with a degree in film, and he does great work. And so what I'm hoping is for, especially, so this podcast, I mean, we do these audio podcasts, which is the meat and potatoes, the backbone of, of our time here. We're putting this out to bring you along with us and to educate this and give tips and hacks and what we do and what we've done for all these decades. Um, and as well as staying up, up to speed with the new technology, but the video, the vlogs. So just to let you in on a little secret planned ahead, you know, one of the species that I hope to go after on this 10 day expedition are doll sheep. And it's an effort for this young man. I have fun with it. But I want to tell the story. And historically, we do this in a documentary. We'd give you a 30-minute documentary. But I know a lot of you listeners are busy. So what I want to do instead is I want to create these short vlogs, these short video stories. So on this doll sheep hike, hoping we have success, I want to do like five stories, each two minutes long. And I'll be filming both video and stills of the doll sheep if we're fortunate to get close to them. But... I want to do the storyline along the way. So having another cameraman along who can run different angles and, and I've got a new gimbal on order uh, for the camera and just added movement will create these short videos to make you feel like you're there with us. And so I'm excited about this trip. So we're going to put that in play. I have some great colleagues that I'll be meeting, meeting up with on this trip. I've got wildlife biologist friends. I've got um, wildlife photographer friends. And so we may also do... Uh, a few podcasts. I'm hoping to sit down on the side of the mountain with one of my good friends. I haven't talked to him about it yet, who is <laughs> Miss, Mr. Sheep. He loves every species of mountain sheep. And it would be incredible if we could get up there out of the wind in some cavern high up on the mountain 
and just sit down for an hour and hear some of his stories to share with you. I don't know if that will come to fruition, but my point is, yeah, this trip coming up, we have a lot of potential plans and that's very exciting. It's one of my favorite destinations. So yeah, definitely stay tuned in. More importantly, subscribe because when these come up, you'll be notified about them as well. So both on the audio podcast platform that you desire, that you listen to, or on our YouTube channel. Make sure to subscribe there because the video shorts come up there. We do link them on our website at wildandexposed.com with each podcast. But if you really want that segment as well, go on the YouTube and subscribe. Get both flavors coming your way. So you have been listening to Wild and Exposed. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.